Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome and honor Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. He is probably one of the most important people living today on the planet in the area of science and his work regarding the morphogenic field, telepathy, and other areas regarding animals and humans and consciousness is as important as the discovery of non-locality. He is the author of over 10 books and 80 scientific papers. He's a former research fellow of the Royal Society, where he studied natural sciences at Cambridge University. He was also a scholar at Clare College. He's won many prizes, the University Botany Prize. He studied philosophy and history of science at Harvard University, where he was a Frank Knox Fellow. He's been the Director of Studies in Biochemistry and Cell Biology at Clare College, Cambridge. His accolades go on and on and on. One of the books that we're going to be talking about today is Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home and Other Explained Powers of Animals, which has been fully updated and revised. It is my great pleasure and honor to welcome from London, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, to its rainmaking time. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Kim. First thing I want to do for people that are not familiar with your work and your background in biology is to lay out as concisely as you're able, even though it's taken many books to lay this out, what is the morphogenetic field? Morphogenetic fields. Um, they're fields that shape developing organisms. And they're one category of a wider kind of field called morphic fields. The word morphic comes from the word, Greek word morphe, which means form. They're formative fields. They're the fields that shape molecules, crystals, cells, tissues, organisms, and societies of organisms like flocks of birds. Um, they're also the fields that um, underlie and shape our mental processes and our perception. So these are the organizing fields of nature over and above the electromagnetic and gravitational and quantum fields we're already familiar with. And the key feature of these fields is that they have a kind of memory within them. So each species draws upon a collective memory and each individual both draws on it and contributes to it. So it's really a theory of collective memory in nature. It is as if it is alive, it's pulsating, and it's invisible to us, but the way you describe it and articulate it is though it's a living thing. Well, that's right. I mean, basically, this is part of a paradigm shift, a change in the way we see reality from the model of the world as a machine, which is the current orthodoxy in science. It's called the mechanistic theory of life. It says animals and plants and even we are simply machines, lumbering robots as Richard Dawkins put it. Um, it means a shift from that machine theory of nature to the organism theory of nature, where we see everything in nature as a kind of organism, well, at least everything that's self-organizing nature, including galaxies, solar systems, um, people, plants, animals, crystals, even molecules are a kind of organism where the whole is more than the sum of the parts. Now, you were a plant physiologist at the International Crops Research Institute for the Semi-Arid Tropics in India. How has your work with plants directly influenced this new paradigm that you're articulating? Well, I started out uh, for years at Cambridge and then in India working on how plants grow. And, I mean, it's still one of my great interests. Um, 
And that was really what led me into the idea of morphogenetic fields, form-shaping fields in developing plants. Um, we understand a lot about plant hormones. There, there are various hormones, for example, auxin. It's one of the plant hormones. That hormone is present in all plants, and it's present in all parts of plants. And at first, I thought, as many people still think, that you could explain all the development of plants just in terms of these chemicals. But then I realized that actually you can't because it, the petals and the leaves of the same plant or an oak tree, an ash tree, a palm tree, they all have the same hormones and yet they have completely different shaped leaves. Um, they're completely different kinds of plants. Um, so what makes them different, I think, is the fact that they have organizing fields like invisible molds or patterns that shape them as they grow. And I think that similar fields underlie mental activity and the instincts of animals. So they're a kind of habit of the species. You say that there's a distinction between religion and dogma and open-minded inquiry. And you state in the book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home, one of the reasons that animals were not really looked at in terms of telepathy or emotionality or the connection between animals and other animals and animals and humans is because that whole area has been taboo. Can you explain that? Because I didn't even know that. Oh, I see. Well, no, the point is, my point really is that science, as it's currently practiced, is frequently very dogmatic. Scientists often criticize religious people for being dogmatic, but actually the sciences are much worse when it comes to dogmatism in my experience because there's a kind of narrow-minded view that, that scientists already know the truth. And the, the reason why research on telepathy in dogs is taboo is for two reasons. First of all, there's a taboo against telepathy and psychic phenomena because um, the dominant dogma at the moment is that the mind is nothing but the brain. Mental activity is brain activity. Therefore, it's all, all inside the head. Therefore, intentions shouldn't have any effect at a distance and telepathy shouldn't happen. Um, that's one dogma. The other dogma is one that means you shouldn't take pets seriously. Um, and the reason for that is that the official view is that animals are nothing but machines. Therefore, factory farming is perfectly fine. And you sh you it's fine to grow chickens in tiny cages and treat them as cogs in a production line. Um, but when it comes to pets, of course, we have a very different relationship. We treat, we give pets names, we mourn them when they die, we spend a lot of money on veterinary care, uh, we really care for them, and have a personal relationship with them. Now, that ought not to happen if they're just machines. So the taboo operates by keeping pets in a completely separate compartment, um, because if people thought of all animals like that, then they'd become vegetarians or possibly even animal rights activists. So the taboo is designed to keep a sharp split between pets, which are part of the private realm, and the machine theory of life, which operates in the public realm and in agribusiness and factory farming and so forth. So basically what I'm saying is that the, these two taboos, the taboo against taking pets seriously and the taboo against telepathy and other psychic phenomena, have almost completely prevented research in this area until very recently. I think from a public standpoint, one of the misperceptions of relating to animals and keeping at bay that they're telepathic and that they feel, or kind of deflecting that, is to say that, well, they have small brains, they don't process like us, they don't feel like us. There are some cultures that will cook animals alive and shred them and brutally skin them 
and do terrible things to them. That's exactly that mechanistic view, the compartmentalized view of them is how they're held. People also assert they have small brains, so they can't possibly feel like we do. Do you agree or disagree that there's something there? I don't think that the brain size has a great deal to do with it. I mean, anyone who keeps a dog or a cat knows that they have feelings. They know they're not a machine. Uh, they know they have the same kinds of emotions as we do. You know, they're capable of love, affection, fear, um, you know, hunger. I mean, they, they, we're, a lot of our human nature is based on the same emotions as animals. And, um, you know, brain size may enable us to do things like build computers that animals don't do. But um, it's not what underlies, you know, emotions. They're much more basic. And um, the kinds of feelings animals have and also their telepathic abilities are in many cases in excess of humans. I don't think brain size has much to do with telepathy. The average dog is much more telepathic than its owner. I agree with you. I just feel like that's one of the stigmas is that people that do compartmentalize animals as being simply machines can do it because they're not human and they don't look like us and they have the small brain. But what stirred you to such an extent that you were interested in telepathy with animals? Well, I got interested in telepathy in the first place, not because I'm particularly psychic myself. I'm, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm slightly psychic, but not particularly spectacularly so. Um, but because I had a scientific theory, the morphic field theory, that suggested that members of social groups uh, would remain in contact with each other telepathically, even when they're separated in space. So I thought it was theoretically possible, even likely, that telepathy would exist in animals. Um, and I, then I found that virtually no research whatever had been done on the subject. And I started asking people and thinking about my own pets, you know, what have I ever thought there was something going on beyond what science could explain. And I soon started hearing all sorts of stories um, about dogs that know when their owners are coming home, cats that know when their owners are coming home. For example, the first thing that really got me thinking was a neighbor in my hometown, Newark, Nottinghamshire in England. Um, her son was a, a merchant seaman. And she told me one day that she always knew when her son was coming home. He didn't tell her himself because he didn't want to say when his ship would get in um, because if he was delayed, she'd worry. So he never told his mother. But she always knew when he was coming because she told me the cat went and sat on the front doormat several hours before he got home. It seems to have been when he was sort of setting off from his ship in Southampton, the dock where he docked usually. Um, and when the cat did that and was very attached to him, she knew he was on the way and she got his bedroom ready. She went out and bought some food so when he got home there'd be a meal for him. Um, and she just took this completely for granted. Um, and I started asking around and I soon started hearing hundreds of stories. I now have a database with literally thousands of stories about uh, dogs, cats, parrots, horses, and other animals that pick up their owner's intentions and seem to respond to them at a distance. And you also talk about the fact that there are some animals that even know when people are about to pass. Oh, yes. There, is, there, there was a famous case recently of a, a cat in a hospice that went round and visited people before they were about to pass. And um, the doctors were even wrote, one of the doctors even wrote a paper about it in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, but many animals seem to know that. They also seem to know when their owners have passed in a dist dif distant place. 
And for example, one of the stories on my database is from a family in England. Uh, the husband and wife had gone on holiday to Ireland. They'd left their dog with a neighbor. And one night around midnight, the dog started howling and they couldn't stop it. And they didn't know what was wrong. And the dog seemed to be fine in health and stuff. And the next morning, they got a phone call to say that this man had had a heart attack and had died around midnight, just when the dog started howling. So that kind of ability to pick up on an owner's death or distress at a distance is, seems to be very widespread. Lots of dogs uh, and cats have done this. This is obviously not something you can do experiments on. You can't ask people to die at random times so their dog can be observed. <laughs> uh, so we have to rely on spontaneous cases here. But um, anyway, this is um, uh, one of the things that animals are very sensitive to people's moods, emotions, and needs. And many people have found that uh, when they're at home, if they're feeling ill or depressed or in pain, uh, their animal will come to them and comfort them. Um, we had a cat that did that, that, that my wife called Remedy. That was the cat's name because she was a remedy. Whenever my wife was depressed or ill or uh, in pain, the cat would come and sit on her lap and purr and make her feel better. So animals are very sensitive to our moods and our needs, and um, they can even do this at a distance and pick up our intentions. And that's when we really notice the telepathy. Could you now give us a frame of reference for what telepathy is vis-a-vis -vis your definition? Well, the word telepathy literally means distant feeling. Tele, as in telephone and television, means distant in Greek. And pathy, as in sympathy and empathy, means feeling. So telepathy means distant feeling. It's mainly about feeling, not thought transference. And it's mainly to do with emotions and needs. Um, and it occurs between bonded members of social groups. It could be between a mother and a baby. Uh, a lot of mothers are telepathic with their babies. Um, uh, it could be uh, between a husband and wife, lovers. It could be between a dog and its owner or a cat and its owner. And it can be between animals, uh, you know, one dog and another dog. Um, usually it's to do with needs or desires or picking up intentions. So a lot of dogs and cats pick up their owner's intentions to go away even before they start packing suitcases or talking about it. A lot of cats pick up their owner's intentions to take them to the vet. They disappear. Um, <laughs> and this is a big nuisance for a lot of cat owners and, and for vets because people very often miss their appointments with vets because the cats disappeared. Um, and um, then dogs and cats that know when their owners are coming home is really quite common. I did a survey in California and about 50% of households with dogs or cats uh, said that the animal knew when an absent member of the family was coming home. And that, I think, is picking up the person's intention. It's not just routine. It's not just familiar car sounds, because we've done lots of experiments on that, which I describe in my book. Um, it's, um, it seems to be that the animal's picking up the person's intention from a distance. It's absolutely fascinating and it's so confirming because so many people think that a lot of communication is just the talking when probably most of it is in the non-spoken realm and that's what you're dealing with here, right? Absolutely. And I mean, this is after all, among many people who work with dogs, it's a completely mainstream view. Um, you know, in the scientific world, it may seem a rather unorthodox view, but 
Barbara Woodhouse, who was the doyenne of dog trainers here in Britain, she was a formidable lady who was you know, Britain's top dog, dog trainer for years. And in her book on how to train your dog, uh, she simply takes telepathy for granted. She said, your dog is responding to pictures in your mind. Um, it's the, not the words you say, but the picture you form in your mind that's important. So to train your dog, you've got to form a clear picture of what you want it to do. And that's what it's going to respond to most of all. And she took telepathy completely for granted on the basis of years of experience of her own and of people that used her methods. So, um, you know, in many circles, this is just totally taken for granted. How have you been received in terms of your recent findings, the synthesis of what you found, in particular now dogs that know when their owners are coming home? How is it being received in the UK? How is it being received in other countries, to your knowledge right now? Well, the, this is a new and revised edition of my book. When the book first came out, it was a bestseller in Britain, Germany, the US, and a whole range of other countries. A lot of pet owners love the book because it tells them about things in some sense they already know and then other things which make perfect sense to them. Um, and so I think that for people who actually have experience of animals, pet owners, vets, um, police dog handlers, horse trainers, um, those kinds of people um, really like my, uh, my book because it deals with so many things they've noticed and a lot they haven't. Um, in the scientific world, then there's a, a, a different reaction um, because in public, most scientists feel they have to obey the taboo against telepathy and the taboo against taking pets seriously. Um, so they wouldn't like to come out in public and say they like it. But an awful lot of scientists, after all, are normal people, and many of them have dogs waiting at the door for them when they get home from the laboratory. So... Um, in private, I've had many scientists tell me that they found the book really very helpful and interesting and in that they'd noticed these kinds of things themselves in their own animals. So in public, they wouldn't want to say that because they'd be afraid of you know, being uh, thought weird or something. Um, so there's a, you have to remember there's a big difference between scientists, public, and their private opinions. I would imagine it's huge. By the way, this also goes on in climatology as well. There's a lot of climatologists around the world who don't agree with the official view of what's going on and are not going to come forward and say anything because they don't want to lose grants, they don't want to lose credibility, and they don't want to be chastised and marginalized in their field. Well, I'm afraid it's true of all of science, actually. This, the science at the moment is not motivated by um, a sense of free inquiry and, and stuff, but much more by fear and the fear of losing grants, the fear of not getting promoted, the fear of one's papers not being approved by anonymous peer reviewers, and so on. So this is a terribly inhibitory for uh, real free inquiry in science. And actually, that's one of the themes of my new book, not yet out in the United States, but which is published here in Britain, called The Science Delusion. In Britain, it's called The Science Delusion, Freeing the Spirit of Inquiry. Uh, in the U.S., it's going to be called, in September when it comes out, Science Set Free, Ten Paths to New Discovery. And what I'm doing in that book is taking the standard dogmas of science, those ten basic dogmas, um, and what I do is turn them into questions um, and look at them scientifically using scientific evidence, reason, um, logic, 
and examine whether these fundamental dogmas of science hold up scientifically. And the answer is none of them do. That um, what I think this does is open up a whole lot of new questions. For example, in the area we've been talking about, dogs that know when their owners are coming home, um, if, you, if one drops the taboo and says, okay, look, the evidence is good, this really seems to happen, where do we go next? Then uh, one question would be, well, if dogs know when their owners are coming home, is this just because they're domesticated, or do animals in the wild have telepathic powers with each other? Well, where I'd look for that is look at wolves. Wolves are the ancestors of dogs. Do wolf cubs in the den know when the adults are coming back with food for them? And one way to do this would be to put these small surveillance cameras that are now very small, you know, these spy cameras, very tiny ones, in a wolf den and actually observe the wolf cubs. This is perfectly feasible technically now. It wouldn't have been a few years ago. Um, and find out, do they know when, uh, when the adults are coming back? I think they might, because so many animals do have this ability to anticipate arrivals. I think it probably happens in the wild. Um, but these taboos have held back inquiry in many areas of science. And I feel that um, if we let go of the taboos, we really can open up science in a new way and make it much more fun and much more exciting. You've written over 80 papers. Now, how have you dealt with the peer review process as a scientist when a lot of times the people that are peer reviewing you are the people that are guarding the gate of the existing knowledge and the existing framework? Well, I have to say that even for scientists in regular orthodox science, peer review is a pretty tough and bruising process. So it's not as if everyone else has it easy. It's something that most scientists have to cope with. Um, the problem I've had is, is not so much the reviewers as the journals. In some journals, uh, for example, I wrote a, a paper on some of my experiments on dogs that know when their owners are coming home and sent it to the top journal on animal behavior, which is called animal behavior. And the editor wrote back saying, I'm not sending your paper out for peer review because no reviewer for this journal would take seriously a paper that mentions the word telepathy. So at least he was honest and upfront. And so I sent it to another journal and a more open-minded editor sent it out for peer review. And um, you know, peer reviewers usually quibble over various details, and they did. And you know, they wanted to new statistical analysis and stuff. That's all the kind of standard stuff you get with peer review in science. I did all that, jumped through the hoops, and they published the paper. So um, basically what happens is that... Um, there are certain journals whose editors are narrow-minded who won't ever publish in this field. Luckily, there's lots of scientific journals, and there are some where they're more open-minded, and they will. So um, the first obstacle is to find an open-minded journal. But on the whole, I approve of the peer review process. It keeps up quality. It means people just can't put totally flaky data into the scientific literature. Um, but it's a nuisance uh, when you're trying to get papers published, and especially in unorthodox areas. Um, but, you know, I'm not challenging the system, um, um, and, you know, I played the rule by the games, uh, the game by the rules, um, and I think one has to. Um, anyway, I think the evidence is growing very strong that telepathy really does happen, and that um, many dogs and cats really are telepathic, as well as many parrots, horses, and other animals. On page 173, you talk about this flock of birds as a memory is like following a morphogenic field 
you write here, as sensory range is increased, a response to a greater number of neighbors increases cohesion and allows effective long-range transfer of directional information. Now, I know that's just one sentence out of the whole context that you're laying out, but you're using this as an example to talk about the flock of birds when they're flying together mm. and how they're able to change direction all together. Do you want to say a little something about that? I thought that was interesting. Well, flocks of birds, um, like especially starlings, um, can be very large and they can all change direction at almost the same time. Um, this has been a mystery for quite a while. Um, and at first, people thought you could explain it by just saying they look at their nearest neighbors and respond to the average movement of their nearest neighbors um, by just watching what they do. Um, that won't work because they react too fast to be able to look at them, process the information in their brains, send the impulses to their muscles through the nerves and so on. And that takes at least 100 milliseconds, and they're reacting much quicker than that. So the best models today, the best computer models, treat the whole flock as a kind of field, a bit like iron filings in a magnetic field, where the whole field affects how the individual parts within it react. Um, and I think that flock behavior is an example of a morphic field of a social group. We have a similar phenomenon in schools of fish, uh, where the fish swim together, even in the darkness. They're not, they can't see each other. They go on swimming together at night. Um, and they move together. And if a predator approaches, they can move apart extremely fast. Um, so they not only have to know where their neighbors are, but they have to know where they're going to go. And um, because otherwise they'd all bump into each other, which they don't. Um, so I think this is all determined by fields of the whole group. And um, to understand it, we need to understand the dynamics of the field that connect them, which is more than just the individual fish and their sort of fairly straightforward interactions. There's something more going on. The whole is more than the sum of the parts in flocks of birds and schools of fish, as indeed in everything else. You would probably say that that's true with humans as well? I would, yes. I think human social groups um, are more than the sum of the parts in families, football teams, um, all kinds of social groups have their own field, their own patterns of activity. And, you know, we as individuals take part in a range of social groups, but each one has its own kind of field, its own kind of expectations, norms, rules, patterns, many of which are unconscious. Um, so I think we're all part of these fields all the time. What is your take on the fact that pets can find people from very far away? I just want to wrap with that answer. Well, that's a very fascinating thing. I mean, homing behavior itself is mysterious, where people find that where animals like homing pigeons find their home from far away. But even more remarkable is what you just mentioned, where somebody moves away from home, they leave the pet behind. And in some cases, pets can find them even hundreds of miles away. And I've looked into quite a few cases of this, and it's very clear they're not doing it by sniffing the route the person's taken, because in some cases they've traveled by boat or by airplane. Um, and so the pet hasn't done it by just sniffing a trail. Um, and if the person's traveled by car to sniff a trail from the wheels of the car, the pet would have to go along highways, sniffing in the busy part of highways, and obviously it wouldn't survive long if it did that. Um, so 
there seems to be a connection between the pet and the owner. Um, and that's what I think is involved in telepathy. But I think it's like an invisible elastic band. Not only does it connect them at a distance, but it gives a direction. So if the uh, pet needs to find the owner, um, it can feel a pull in a particular direction and go in that direction till it finds the owner. Um, and there's no other way they could find people who've moved to a new place where the animal's never been before. There has to be some sort of directional connection between them. Um, and I think that's a very fascinating phenomenon and one which has been very little investigated. It is a great pleasure to have you on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been listening to, learning from, and talking with Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. We've been talking about dogs that know when their owners are coming home and other explained power of animals. And you can learn more about Dr. Rupert Sheldrake's work by going to sheldrake.org, S-H-E-L-D-R-A-K-E, Org. And thank you so much for giving us your time today. I look forward to having you back to discuss your new book when it's out in the United States on the science delusion. Thank you so much, Dr. Sheldrake. A pleasure, Kim.